Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. There are people who work really hard at it. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Rachel Williams. Rachel is a native of Eastern North Carolina. She holds a PhD in art education and an MFA in studio art from Florida State University. She's an associate professor of gender, women's, and sexuality studies and studio art at the University of Iowa, where she has worked since 1999. Her writing appears in Southern Cultures, Meridians, the Journal of Arts Management, Law and Society, the Journal of Poetry, Therapy, Feminist Studies, and Visual Arts Research. She's also the author of Teaching the Arts Behind Bars, and Rachel has two books published this year, Elegy for Mary Turner and Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed, The Detroit Uprising of 1943. Rachel shares her journey becoming an artist, teacher, author, and why she's a self-described fangirl of history. We discuss her work and influences. We explore her experience working with and teaching art to incarcerated women since 1994. Rachel shares the powerful and disturbing story of Mary Turner, who was lynched while eight months pregnant. Rachel's latest books highlight the ugliness white supremacy and white violence have on our society and that we continue to struggle with these issues today. Please note, if you buy Elegy for Mary Turner, the profits go to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. It was an honor having Rachel join me on the show. I'd like to thank her for her time and insights. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure, Matt. Thanks so much for inviting me today. I'm really honored to be part of this series. Um, uh, my name is Rachel Williams. I'm from Eastern North Carolina. I say that up front so that people are not so distracted by my accent. Um, I am a faculty member in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies in the School of Art and Art History at the University of Iowa. Um, and uh, I have two kids and a very sweet partner and uh, lots of hobbies, couple of dogs. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that's that's great. Oh, thanks so much for for joining me, and uh, you know, just for for the listeners. So I'm excited because you're in the School of Art and Art History, and that's that's where the the original prototype of the original Iowa idea started was bringing art, artists to campus. Uh, so want to talk to you you. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of different things on on where we can tell. You're an author. You're an artist. Uh, you're a professor. Uh, any any of those that you want to start with? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's super funny. I always think of myself as a teacher rather than a professor. Um, and I know that I am a professor. I don't want to downplay that. I recognize yeah. that. But I just I think 
you know, teaching is sort of a lifelong um, art form in and of itself. And um, in my mind, it's a real calling. Uh, and so um, I, you know, I always think that's an important thing to to talk about. Uh, I've been making art since I was a kid. I can't you know, I can't ever remember a moment when I was like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. It's just sort of what I did. Um, so, but I do remember having moments when I was like, oh, I could enjoy writing. You know, I never thought of myself as a writer or someone who would, you know, be good at writing. Um, and I'm still, you know, again, that's a lifelong uh art form. You know, I'm not sure we ever get as good at writing as we, we would like to be. So. Thanks. And so early interest in creating art, was there a particular uh, medium or art form that you, you know, I was, I was drawn to? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good story. I was really, really fortunate. Um, both of my grandparents uh, on my father's side were retired uh, when I was a little kid. And my um, grandmother uh, my dad's mom was a school teacher and a counselor. And so, you know, when we went to hang out with them, we were going to be doing something, you know, basically the whole time. So it was not, you know, and this is the 1970s. So television was not nearly the um, medium that it is now. And so um, I think she would get tired of entertaining us. And so then my grandfather would find ways to entertain us. And one of the things about him you know, that I always saw him as, I always saw him as an artist. And he, you know, looking back, I realized he was like a hobby painter. And he and my grandmother took art classes at the senior center. And he was quite dedicated to it and made lots of paintings. Um, but he always had paintings going. And so uh, he started me off working with the oil paint, uh, probably about when I was maybe six or seven years old. And I just want to tell people that's really not appropriate for a six or seven year old, just if you're thinking about it. But, you know, uh, so that's kind of when I started making work. And I can remember, you know, I was really into it. He had, you know, gave me his old Peshad box and, um, you know, had started me off with just the primary colors. So all I had for years and years was black, white. I can still remember it. Mars black, titanium white. Um cadmium yellow, cobalt blue, and I think it was Napenthal red now that I'm thinking about it, but it could have been um, alizarin crimson, but that was all I had, you know, and I was, he was like, you have to make all your colors out of this. So that was actually a really good exercise, but, you know, I can remember being at home one day and painting all day long. I was in my bedroom. Again, not appropriate. You should not use oil paint in a closed room, and I painted this, you know, and I'm from a very rural part of North Carolina. I remember painting this hound dog holding a duck in its mouth, which in my mind was like the height of really good art. And my dad came home and I was like, dad, you know, what do you think? Do you think I can be an artist? And my dad is a very uh, thoughtful person and kind. And he said, you know, honey, there are really two kinds of artists. There are people who are truly talented, and then there are other people who just work really hard at it. And I think, you know, you're the kind of person who's just going to work really hard at it. And that stuck with me. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, and he was being very kind. Um, so, uh, but that's, you know, that's kind of my earliest memory of thinking, yeah, you know, I'm going to make art. This is what I'm going to do. So... <laughs> 
That that's great. I, I want to talk about some of uh, your areas of interest in in academia, uh, and I guess maybe before we, there's a couple things I want to jump into. But uh, you know, right right now you're and and I apologize the the whole but you're in the Department of uh, Women's Sexuality Gender Studies. Yep, Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Yep. G-with. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. That's great. How now? How how did you end up there? This is, you know, another, I have been so fortunate and just really had a series of very serendipitous events um, in my life that have put me in touch with just fantastic people. So, um, you know, my time at the University of Iowa started, um, Steve McGuire hired me and has played an incredible role in terms of my um my academic experience, he was a fantastic and still is actually mentor. And I was in art education and I, um, you know, I, a lot of folks in the field of education work very directly with K through 12 teachers in school settings. And while I did that, my interest was really um, more geared towards adult education and um, especially adults who may not have easy access to education for whatever reason that might be. And I ended up um, as a graduate student, I was very fortunate enough to uh, have an experience where I was able to volunteer and teach art in a women's prison. And um, my dissertation ended up being about um, people who call themselves artists in prison. What does art do in that culture? And then when I moved to Iowa, I started working um, as a volunteer at the Iowa um, Correctional Institution for Women. And so I worked there for, gosh, probably 10 or 12 years. And I had a wonderful student. And, you know, I would just go by myself or I would have, I had some friends, adult friends who would go with me. So Jeffrey Palermo, who's one of my best friends, would often go with me and we would do programs together. Um, I had this student, Rebecca McRae, who's a University of Iowa alumni now and actually an incredible writer um, and who still continues to focus on issues related to people who are incarcerated. And she dogged me. She just you know, I met her, or she saw me speak or something, and she would reach out and say, hey, I really want to go to the prison with you. I'd never taken students. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Come meet me in office hours. And students rarely will actually take you up on that, unfortunately. And so, but she did and um, continued to ask to go with me. And finally, I was like, all right, fine. I guess I'm going to take this young woman with me. Um, I don't know how this is going to go because it's a really complex and nuanced thing. And I honestly was really concerned about um, the women with whom I worked. You know, I did not want them to feel like I'm going to traipse people through to see you so that they can say, yeah, you know, I've worked with people who are this, that, or the other. And so I was really kind of protective of that space and of my students who were incarcerated. She was phenomenal. She turned out to be the best thing ever. And, um, was so talented and worked with folks and, you know, it's pretty funny because I worked with student teachers and they were also all amazing. And so the fact that my own lack of imagination didn't translate that until uh, into that setting really shows that I was obviously clueless until Rebecca. So all that's to say, I really enjoyed taking her. I ended up you know, she was sort of a gateway. So then I started inviting other people. And then the Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies Department, I think it was Jennifer Glass at the time, 
uh, I think that's who it was, it might have been Leslie Schwamm, approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in taking some of our students with you um, into the, um, the women's prison? And I was like, gosh, that is a dream job. Yes, please let me teach that class. And so um, I had students really from all over, a lot of students from gender, women's and sexuality studies. And, you know, one of the lessons of teaching is that you need to recognize that the, the folks you're going to teach already have ideas and experiences and that, you know, your job is to draw on those strengths. So we did not go in. I was very clear with um, my students at the time. We are not here to teach these women anything. You know, they already know a lot more than we do. So what can we do? What could we do that would be useful? So we spent a year as a think tank with students from inside the university and students inside the women's uh, facility and spent a year sort of thinking what, what would be useful. And we ended up with um, four topics that really came out, motherhood, substance abuse, um, healthy relationships, and um, wow, I'm just blanking on it, uh, healthcare. And so, um, out of that, you know, we ended up having a, a conference that was open to everyone um, who was incarcerated at ICIW. And we spent a year after that creating this curriculum around healthy relationships. And we worked with um, the women in the prison who would later become part of our, our facilitation circles. Um, but that's how that started. And that's how I ended up in gender, women's and sexuality studies. That was a long story. Um, but you know, that's how I ended up in that department. Uh, basically, the the students just were amazing. My student, all of my students actually have been amazing. Um, and uh, my, you know, my colleagues have always been amazing, too. So. Well, thank you. And if you don't mind for me, because uh, I, you know, I think incarceration and prison, it's, it's an abstract for a lot of people. So, um, what I'm just curious too about the the experience and and what some of these women were going through. Uh, maybe you know, just my my assumption. So I'm just throwing my mental model out there too. Is uh, maybe maybe art as a form of expression, maybe ways to communicate emotion uh, that is that standard language might be hard. To, but I'm kind of curious on. Um, what what you saw and also if you can just provide a little bit of insight for folks that kind of a, in, a, in a black and white world well prison must be bad so the people in there must be bad right. too and uh but right I, the, the idea is these are humans right and and we also want these these humans to live their best life when they're out of prison right and so like where where does where does the punitive element begin and end where does you know, all the, the topics that you were talking about, about healthy kind of relationships and uh, maybe a healthy identity of self. Those are all things that are just swirling around in my head and I'm having trouble articulating it into a particular question. But if you could shed some light on that kind of that connection from art and also what, you know, if, if listeners aren't familiar with what might be going on in the, the lives of those that are incarcerated and, and that, that whole ecosystem. Well, I think the first thing to recognize is the punitive never ends. You know, it never ends. Once you are um, incarcerated, it is a constant, um, you're constantly sort of, uh, you've now sort of crossed over into this system that is really 
you know, as much as we want to talk about rehabilitation and, um, you know, creating a new life, you are constantly under surveillance. It is a state of constant deprivation um, and punishment, you know, ongoing punishment. And the thing that's really awful about prison is that even if people have served, quote unquote, served their time, you know, they are still going to be punished. Um, I know that Iowa is thinking about helping people who've created nonviolent or who've committed nonviolent felonies take those felonies off their records. And I am very much in support of that. Um, I would say that, you know, the women that I met at ICIW came from all walks of life. Um, I will also say I don't want to gloss over the fact that Iowa has um, is definitely very high on the list for disproportionate minority contact. So when you go into a prison in Iowa, you will see far more black and brown faces than you might see um, in the general population in Iowa. And that's a huge problem. Um, I also think that a number of people who are incarcerated have been, you know, traumatized and have dealt with trauma, um, whether that's economic trauma, whether that's educational trauma, whether that's trauma, you know, related to interpersonal relationships, um, even trauma at the hands of our healthcare system. You know, you you will definitely meet people who have um, been really sort of wrecked by addiction, you know, and by poverty, to be really frank, um, where they are caught in systems and there are really no good opportunities for uh, economic prosperity. And so they choose the best opportunities that are available. And, and unfortunately, some of those might be against the law. Um, right. But I would say, you know, the other thing people don't think about with folks in prison is that they're parents. So, you know, most of the women that I worked with at Mitchellville have children, you know, so you're not only punishing those uh, adults, you're also punishing their families and their children. And, and in some cases, you know, those children end up in foster care, they lose their kinship networks. Um, it is it is just one sort of domino effect after another. I would also say, you know, I've met women in prison who have graduate degrees, who had professional lives before they were incarcerated, or who go on to have professional lives after they have left prison. And so I think, you know, we all have moments in our life where we are at a low point, And it doesn't mean that that moment should define us. Um, unfortunately, when you when that coincides with a crime, our society makes that moment define you. But I don't think that that that's the whole picture. So, you know, um, I think a person's personhood should be very separate from you know whatever offense they might have created. And I really do that believe that um, redemption is something we have to think about. You know, not in a necessarily religious sort of way, but that we have to have a path for people to be accepted back into society, to, you know, restore in some ways the harm that they've um, created for the people that they've harmed. You know, and I recognize that that is not always possible, you know, especially when you're talking about um, crimes that are violent with a number of victims that are part of a larger pattern. But those are very few and far between. I mean, that's the first thing that pops into people's heads. And I always want to say, you know, those folks, you could count those people, you know, on, you know, your hand in some instances yeah. in different units. So I, 
I think people have a real mistaken idea about who is incarcerated. So I'm glad you asked me that question. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And I really, I really appreciate the response. And one, one thing I want to follow up on is uh, where you talked about uh, parents being incarcerated and the domino effect, you know, it uh, from a, a design perspective, you know, we talk about wicked problems, right. And the, these where, where there's so many interconnected elements, it, it's hard to have these discrete pieces where, like, okay, here was the crime, here was here was the punishment, and then there's you know there's really no clean redemption after right. that is what I'm here and and then when we talk about certain system elements, maybe be getting more thing right like well a, a you know a child without a strong parental connection too what's going on there and it's. I, I don't have a good way of articulating it, but I've been working with some folks lately and we've been trying to talk about like design for social good for lack of better terms. But, uh, you know, one, one of the things we're, we're talking is having uh, hard conversations with people and organizing them around what we're for, right? Because we get so like we butt heads with people so much on what we're against. Right. But, you know, what are the things that we're for? And, and so I, I even feel like the, uh, so many things with uh, prison justice, incarcerations, that it's so wicked from a problem perspective. But what, you know, what is it that we're looking for? Right. And if it is it redemption, is it a person that can participate in sight? Then, then why do we have so many barriers that prevent them from like a, a smooth onboarding or reentry? And that that's, again, I'm painting with really broad strokes, but just what I'm hearing too is, I, I just appreciate you bringing up the kind of the mother child relationship, which, you know, in different departments, like in the, in the universe, like in the college of ed, right. We'll talk about early childhood and, and cultivating strong nurturing relationships being so important for one's development as a whole person. And here, not only are we punishing uh, the person that create, you know, the, the act, the crime, however, we're going to define that. But then you have this cascading, or as you said, domino effect that probably isn't at the end of the day healthy, nor if we had uh, maybe rational conversations with our community, what we really want. Yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, I think prison creates far more problems than it solves. I mean, I really, you know, and the other thing is there are a lot of other ways to do this. We do not have to, our country does not need to do it the way we've been doing it. Um, when you talk about children, you know, one thing, and again, this is where I want to separate a person's personhood from, you know, a behavior or an act that happened. There are so many people who are outstanding parents who have gotten, you know, caught up um, and incarcerated. And, you know, if we took a minute and thought about, is there a better choice here? And not only is, you know, who have they impacted, but also how will incarcerating them impact people? You know, that's a question that I think needs to be brought up. Um, and so when, you know, I think about mothers who are primary caretakers, um, taken away from their children, those children, you know, one, it, it creates a lot of confusion for kids. They don't understand how is this person that is so good that loves them, that's a very good provider, suddenly been, you know, turned into this bad person? And that's horrible. But it also, you know, that child has to go to school. Who advocates for them in school? You know, and I want to say there are some amazing foster families. That is, you know, no doubt. And our 
you know, Department of Human Services, the people who, the, who are supposed to be looking out for those children, you know, to a person, I think they do the best they can. They're incredibly underfunded. Um, and there's just too much work. We've made too much work and not enough resources. Um, I would love to see us think about re, you know, rethinking resource allocation. You know, what could we do with money that we're putting towards incarcerating people in terms of let's look at their family system, you know, what's going on in this family system that they were driven to this place where, you know, was it that they didn't have adequate mental health care? And so substance abuse and addiction seemed, um, you know, like the only option. Um, is it that, and no one was watching, you know, no one said to them, hey, how many times are you doing this um, every week? What's happening there? I you know, and I'm simplifying it. I mean, it's obviously right. these are w truly wicked problems and they, you know, they have long histories. You know, people don't just wake up and become, um, you know, caught up oftentimes. But, uh, but I think, you know, there's a huge impact on children. You know, people, children are that relationship with your parent um, or guardian or the person that loves you as a small child is really your first real introduction to relationships and human interaction in the world. And if that's suddenly ripped away from you, what else could happen? You know, if, if someone takes away your, your parent, what else could happen to you? You know, that's, that is definitely on the list of some of the worst things that can happen to people when there are healthy relationships. Thank you. And, and yeah, one of the things too, for me, from a systems perspective is uh, systems themselves don't judge, right? They just, they are, mm -hmm. right? But uh, there's certain there's certain incentives in, in a system to beget itself. And so what some of what I'm hearing too is uh, when you said money that could be spent elsewhere, it, for me, and, and I don't claim to understand the space, but uh, when, when there's, there's private prison systems that profit off of, it, it's, there, there's no incentive to rehabilitate or let one out mm -hmm. well, early or... And we, you know, I have to be really frank about this public prison systems, you know, they're actually the number of private prison systems is actually a really small number in comparison to the prison system as a whole, you know, prisons, jails, federal prisons, and those spaces are, are, you know, they, they exist on a very tight budget. I mean, I will tell you, if you talk to any warden in the state, they will actually probably tell you that the largest spending in their budget is related to healthcare, which surprises a lot of people. But also, you know, our state benefits tremendously from incarcerating people, you know, our state benefits from not having to bid for furniture or, um, you know, there's a false economy that if we build a prison in this town, we'll suddenly create a better economic picture. And actually, the outcomes for that, it's not true. You know, once you build a prison in a town, other industries don't want to be associated with that town. I mean, if you think about the prisons in Iowa, for example, and I said it too, yeah. I, they're named after towns. They're, you know, the Iowa Correctional Institution for Women, that is the name, but everybody calls it Mitchellville. People call places Clorinda or Newton or Anamosa. They don't call the name of Oak, Oakdale, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's it is um, it's really unfortunate. And 
you know, in the bigger picture, the other thing is what people don't recognize is that the folks who are incarcerated are preyed upon by corporate, um, you know, corporations that exist to derive profit from incarceration. So, you know, one example, I'll just say, well, there's a couple, gosh, there's so many. One really easy example is telephones, you know, just to call out is an incredible expense, you know, and to send an email. I mean, imagine if you are charged 25 cents per email a day. I say that to people and they're, they're just gobsmacked. And I'm like, okay, so put that in your mind. And then imagine if that is the cheapest way to communicate with people, you know, that's, that's so expensive. Um, So that's just one tiny example, but things like, you know, a bottle of shampoo, that we might buy um, at, you know, a a local grocery store is going to cost two or three times that much on commissary, you know, in the prison. And, you know, the other thing people don't realize is what wages are in prison. So, you know, if you're making a dollar a day, you're just, you're rolling in it. You know, you're making a lot of money. And if you're an indigent person and your family's trying to send money to support you, um, you know, and even the thought of that is, is maddening. You know, I think about folks, you know, and and I I want people to understand I'm not calling out individual people. I'm just thinking about the system as a whole. So, you know, you think about feeding that many people and it's subpar. The food is subpar. I mean, they I think folks who are in charge of dietary in most prisons do the best that they can with what they're given by the state. But, you know, you (laughs) living on canned peas is not fantastic. Um, So, you know, and there's a lot of entrepreneurial things that happen in those spaces, you know, people build gardens and, and do all kinds of stuff, but the deprivation creates really um, interesting, you know, solutions, but yeah, profit is definitely part of it. There is no way to deny that profit is wrapped up in our system of justice and it absolutely should not be. It's horrible. Yeah, thank you. I know uh, one time, and this was actually in the knowledge management space, but just how is new knowledge created in organizations? And I just remember a line that stuck out with you get the behavior you incent, right? And it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that it was intentionally good or bad, but a system figures out its incentives, right? And so he said that even, even how it can benefit nonprofit uh, yeah. elements. So I really, really appreciate that. Want to switch gears a little bit, if that's all right with you. Uh, one of the things when I was getting ready for our interview is I saw, and correct me if, if, if I don't have this correct, uh, that comic books was an area of study for you. Yeah, it is an area of study. And in fact, um, you know, and I'm not really a comic scholar, but there are lots of people in the space who are amazing comic scholars. You know, at our university, we have Anna Marino, we have Corey Creekmer, we have Deborah Whaley, um, you know, in the the space as a whole, you know, I think about the work of Julian Chambliss. I think about Charles Hatfield, G. Here, um, there are lots of scholars who look at um, comics. I mean, it's just like, you know, scholars who study any form of um, text. You know, whether that's yeah. movies or literature or, you know, whatever performances. So, yes, absolutely. And for me. I think of it as an area of scholarship. I am a maker and I um I am endlessly fascinated by how how they work. 
you know, when you put this word with this picture or this text box or speech box with this image, what new things happen? Um, and for me, it was really this revelation. I, you know, was I had an MFA in painting and drawing. And so, you know, I had a very uh, rigorous practice as a painter and I sort of switched lanes after my um, MFA because I took a critical theory class and I'd always loved philosophy. And I took a critical theory class with Sally McRory at um, Florida State. She's the provost there now. And she's just, gosh, one of the most brilliant women. Um, and she just really turned me on to what the possibilities were in terms of scholarship in the field of education and of art. And so, you know, that's sort of where I started writing um, and really writing. And so I kind of developed the secondary track as an ethnographic researcher doing qualitative research, collecting stories. Um, and I had never put the two together. I was like, oh, I have to, you know, tighten my collar and be an ethnographic researcher. And then I can, you know, sometimes do this other thing where I'm a painter. And in my head, they take up two different spaces. So I, I kind of can't do one and still do the other. So I kind of switch back and forth. Um, and when I read, uh, actually, I saw the movie American Splendor, which is based on Harvey P. Carr's book. And I thought, wow. And then, and this is so funny because so many people have this revelation when they're young and they read comics. It did not come to me until I was in my probably 30s. Um, and then I read Harvey P. Carr's books and I was like, holy mackerel. I can do ethnographic research and illustrate it as a comic, you know, <laughs> and it, that, that was mind blowing for me. I know for a lot of people that that would not be mind blowing, but it was this moment where I was like, wow, I can do both of these things. And so, uh, so then I had to learn to do both of those things. You know, it's a, it's a skill. It's not, uh, it's not real easy. So, um, so pretty fun. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, one of one of the things that and this gets into kind of wicked problem space, but on on the design side, you know, big thing that we work on with collaboration is encouraging visual language. Yes. Right. To get people to try to communicate ideas visually. And on some projects, I've been known to hire comic book artists to lay out what this is a story we're talking about, or this is what might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish I could remember where I saw this reading about comic, but it that space between panels, what like you can get a lot of insight when just how people thought what action took place that we didn't see, but good, you know, here was the protagonist. Now yeah. here here now they're doing this. What happened? But that is a provocation for conversation about what might be becomes really, really powerful. Well, it's fascinating. I love that example that you shared. So we call that space the gutter. And it's it's actually a stand-in. And, you know, I'm not, Scott McCloud can tell you all about this. Brilliant. Brilliant comic scholar. And his book, Understanding Comics, is absolutely a must-read for anyone who's interested in visual language. So that gutter, that time, makes us, you know, it's like a beat. So then I think, the way you put a picture A and picture B together and your experience squeezed between those things. You know, if you think about it like a sandwich cream cookie, right? The gooey stuff you put in the middle is all tied to your own worldview, you know? So I might see, you know, protagonist, antagonist and my imagination about what has just happened in that space might be totally different from yours. Now, 
a good artist or creator will kind of steer you into a particular interpretation. But, you know, there's a lot that, that you could imagine in that in between that other people may or may not. Um, but it's also this, you know, it's also a physical act. So I love to read. And one of the reasons I love to read is because, you know, while I'm reading, my brain is making pictures, right? And so, um, you know, it's just this wonderful sort of you get lost. Like if you read a good comic book, to me, it's like watching, it's the same experience as watching a film that's subtitled. I don't even realize that I've integrated, you know, the narration and the voices and the thoughts and the images, you know, it's just seamless. And so that's, that's when you know you're reading something that's really been well-crafted. That I, I love it. And, uh, and the, these might be kind of pedestrian examples, but what I'm thinking about is that when I was a little kid, I was really into Spider-Man, X-Men, uh, Batman. But I wow. remember that one of the things that frustrated me was how these storylines might jump titles mm-hmm. right? or like try, like there were probably like five or six different versions of Spider-Man. And, and like, as a little kid, I just want, a Spider-Man arc. So like, I, like out of frustration, I left comics uh, and, you know, some of my friends have been, you know, comic book fans uh, their entire life. But then when I got a little bit older, I remember some of the work like that uh, Frank Miller was doing with like the dark Knight or Alan oh, yeah. Moore, like with the, with the Watchmen or yep. V for Vendetta. And mm-hmm. what made me think that one is that those have been translated into movies, but is right. But some really powerful stories there, and you know, upon reflection, it's not like I, I recall it as a graphic novel or a comic. It it just felt like a a really rich narrative whole. Like it, so it's like when I think I I would have to look at the comic again to say, oh yeah, that that was it, rather than the story arc that is like just fluid in my mind. Yeah, you know, and the thing, I mean, what you just touched on is one of the other things that I love about comics. And again, I'm not a comic scholar in the way that, you know, there are a lot of people who talk very deeply about this. So um, is the multiverse. And one of the things about comics, you know, is there's this cast of characters, right? Like, you know, the essence of Spider-Man, right? You know, Spider-Man works in this way. And these are the things that tick him off. These are the things that get him excited. But then you can take, anyone can take that concept of Spider-Man and build a multiverse. So like they're super generative when I think about them as like cultural myths that all of us can buy into. I mean, you know, uh, for me growing up, so again, I'm going to age myself. I grew up in one of my absolute, and this is so bad now that I think about it, but one of my absolute favorite, I had two favorite TV shows, the bionic woman and wonder woman. And I thought wonder woman, Linda Carter was honestly the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Like I would have given anything to grow up and be Linda Carter. And so, you know, which is of course now there's all these layers there that you aren't aware of. Right. So we'll just, we'll just leave that there. But all that's to say, even watching the evolution of wonder woman, you know, and what I'm Linda Carter is a multiverse of Wonder Woman, you know, who looks very different from the original Wonder Woman, who looks incredibly different from the Wonder Woman that we're familiar with in, you know, the the movies that are out now. So it's super interesting that 
despite all the ways that she's been translated, that she still exists as like this cultural icon that's just ripe for the picking. You know, as a storyteller, as a culture, we can all tell these stories using these characters. You know, if we're if we're into that, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, and uh, so as a kid, I was I was a fan of the uh, the Wonder Woman, Woman television show to and to you know like when you just when you were saying like right away I could like the the magic power of the bracelets oh, to yeah. be able to deflect you bullets. You can hear the noise, you know, when she's turning. You can probably hear the na na na, you know. <laughs> yeah, who who doesn't want a good twirl and music that supports them, and then it's a costume change and you're all good. You just live in your underwear. How good can life be? It's pretty awesome, you know. <laughs> right. Jewelry, like yes, this is my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that no, that's I really, really appreciate that. Uh, do want to talk about uh, your recent work, if <laughs> if you don't mind jumping into Elegy for uh, Mary Turner. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk about uh, and and just for the audience too, what this project is and and kind of what your your output is right now I'm, I'm trying to leave it kind of yeah yeah ambiguous for for you to fill in the blanks but so mary turner um the my book about mary turner sort of came out of a book that i wrote about um the detroit sort of uprisings in 1943 and part of that book was looking at different rumors um that sort of were sparks for um, interracial violence. And so one of those rumors um, that's actually common, you know, actually, if we talk about cultural myths um, and that has been recycled repeatedly, um, either to incite violence or incite fear is, um, you know, a mother and a baby have been killed by a group that's different, you know, in terms of identity from the mother and baby group. And so Mary Turner's story came up as an example of that particular, um, you know, broad and ugly history. And, um, you know, Mary Turner is not a myth, obviously. So let me tell folks a little bit about that story if they're not familiar with it. Um, and I'll tell you why I was drawn to that story, not only because um, it's horrendous and it's not, it was not well known, uh, but you know, I went to grad school at Florida State University, which is like an hour, hour and a half south of Valdosta, Georgia, where all of this happened. And I taught at Bainbridge College. I was very familiar with that landscape. I'd been to Valdosta several times, driven through there numerous times. Um, so that story for me was rooted in a very real landscape uh, that is actually, you know, that whole part of the United States has its own kind of hauntings. You know, it's haunted by displacement, it's haunted by slavery, it's haunted by racial violence. There is no way um, you cannot go there and not feel that. And so in 1918, um, and in 1918, lots of things were happening. So you've got World War I, you obviously have the Spanish flu, which now all of us know about that because we're living through our own version of a pandemic. Um, and then you also had in Georgia, two things happened in 1918. The boll weevil came through and ate the cotton crop. So that's a real problem um, in an agricultural region that depends, you know, in particular on one crop. Uh, but you also had the birth of a nation screened again. So it was created, I guess, in 1915 and then screened again in Georgia in 1918. And so the other thing that's happening, and this sort of relates to our discussion about prisons earlier, is that 
Um, there was, you know, people were trying to figure out how to accomplish labor for very little money. And so one of the systems that was put into place, obviously, to replace the giant hole that was left when slavery ended in terms of labor um, was sort of uh, prisons where uh, Black people, mostly men, were incarcerated for very minor offenses, loitering, gaming, you know, things like that. And these were, you know, targeted. I mean, these were poor Black people that were targeted for these kinds of offenses. And um, so when they were put in prison, they obviously could not make bail to get out. So then landowners, white landowners, um, would come to the prisoner jail and basically bail them out. In exchange, that person would have to work off the bail on that farm. And, you know, obviously that's never an even proposition. So, you know, it cost me $30 to bail you out. I'm going to pay you $3 a day and, and it's going to build interest. So suddenly you've entered into this horrible situation. And also, if you don't show up for work, if you don't fulfill this, you're going back to prison. So we have this terrible system put in place to uh, deal with, uh, you know, the labor of harvesting cotton. and there's a landowner named Hampton Smith. He's horrible. He, in fact, cannot get people to work for him in a legitimate way. So he draws heavily on this system. And his wife is pregnant. And um, he has had several run-ins with different people. You know, he's had fights uh, with folks who have had to work for him and then said, you know, this is unfair. Um, you know, and he's got the law on his side. He's a powerful landowning white man in Georgia. So, uh, one night he's in his house and the story goes, and you know, this is, this gets muddy depending on who you talk to. One version is that his pregnant wife is standing in the window. She is shot through the shoulder. It goes through her shoulder and kills him. Now, whether that happened exactly in that way or not, is hard to say. He's dead. Um, another version of that story is that it was his own gun that he was shot with. Um, and there's several sort of ideas about how that happened. So he's dead. He's got brothers. Uh, a group of men and boys come together and say, you know, we have to rectify this, um, this, this is not right. And, you know, you also have to recognize that in that um, idea, and really to some degree, it's a white fantasy, there's a pregnant woman, white woman. In some versions of that story, which are not true, she is um, sexually assaulted. Um, she's, you know, injured, not only through with the gun, but also by the, the, you know, people who attacked the house. And, you know, she runs away. Um, also a version of this story, which is pretty interesting, and, and we could talk more about this at a different point, but is that she's saved by um, some kind uh, Black neighbors that she has across the way. So, um, you know, and that's a trope, you know, white woman saved by good black people who like her. Okay. But, you know, we'll come back to that at some other point. But anyway, so these white men come together, a posse, they go on basically a killing spree and begin sort of um, kidnapping and lynching black men who they encounter, who they believe may or may not have some connection to this you know, this initial um, crime. And 
you know, the connections might be incredibly loose or might be completely non-existent. So, um, you know, it starts on, a, I believe it starts on a Friday night and, um, by Saturday, one of the people that is lynched, um, who has no connection, obviously, to this violence, but did have a run-in with Hampton Smith, is Hayes Turner. And Hayes Turner's wife uh, is angry. She's eight months pregnant. She is. She has two children already. And she basically says, she's a Black woman, says, you know, we know who did this. There should be justice, which really refers to the fact that when these lynchings happened, mobs of white people turned out to see this. You know, it was a spectacle. And so, you know, and that is, that's hard, you know, right there, that's hard to wrap your head around that, you know, uh, someone could watch someone else suffer and for, you know, horrible in horrible ways um yeah so just the level of dehumanization that has to happen for this to be yeah spectacle or sport yeah absolutely so she speaks up and when she speaks up you know people know she speaks up it's reported in the newspaper she speaks up these white men show up at her house and take her they drive her by her husband's body which is still hanging and down to the little river under the Folsom Bridge, and they lynch her. And and I won't go into details about how she's lynched. It's quite violent and horrible. And in that process, her her baby is killed. And I don't use the term baby. Um, You know, it is a fetus, obviously, but it's also eight months old. When it um, is taken from her body, it cries out, you know, and um, is killed. So, you know, that to me just adds even grosser level of inhumanity um, to this. So in the end, there's there's 10 people killed and, and then also Mary Turner and her baby. Walter White goes down there. Now in 1916, he graduated from college. So imagine how young he is. He's working for the NAACP. He has a very pale complexion, blue eyes and blonde hair. So he literally passes as a white man. Brave. He comes into town, pretends to be a traveling salesman, goes to restaurants, barber shops, sort of finds out what's going on. And remember, hundreds of people have watched these things. So every white person in town knows this is happening. Every black person in town knows this is happening. People, this is this is a big thing. So people tell him, they run their mouths, you know, and say, oh, you know, these were the people that were there. These were the men that showed up at these houses. And he takes account all of this and writes up, you know, he basically does an investigation into what's happened here. He appeals, he sends it to the NAACP, he sends it to the governor, he appeals, you know, other people outside of Georgia are watching this. There's an amazing story um, out of a newspaper in New York that's like, what is going on? We have to quit these kinds of crimes. You know, there's people calling for justice, but justice never happens. And so, um, you know, it's that my new book is really about all of those things and really about that justice never happens for those people. And um, it is also, you know, I'm really lucky because Miriam Kaba, a really well-known activist and writer who um, just published a book, We Do This Until We Free Us, which is phenomenal about prison abolition, wrote um, a piece for my book and about Say Her Name, which is really part of the thing. I really want people to recognize Mary Turner's story, um, but also recognize that there were many, many women who were lynched, you know, sometimes with their daughters, sometimes with their mothers or um, sisters. Um, 
So that's one thing. So women really don't seem to appear in the history of lynching, you know, in, in, in our cultural imaginations, which is um, terrible. Uh, the other thing, um, I also had George, I mean, not George, sorry, uh, Charles Forehand, who is the great nephew of Mary and Hayes Turner, he wrote a piece for this. Um, and uh, it is so moving. And he talks about there is no place to rest uh, their heads and really referring to the fact that, you know, Mary Turner was never, um, her, her tombstone, so to speak, was a whiskey bottle and a cigar, but of one of the people who had killed her and her baby. And so, you know, her memory was never, she was never moved, resurrected, remembered, memorialized until, you know, years and years later, almost a hundred years later. And so also um, Julie Buckner Armstrong, which is, she is the leading scholar um, around this series of lynchings. And her book is The Memory of Lynching. And it is so moving and so incredible. Um, so I was really lucky to have those people, but that book popped into my head as a series of images. You know, when I read that story, I was working as a doula. I had two children. Um, I was thinking a lot about, um, you know, white supremacy and white violence. Um, and uh, I could not get that story out of my head. And I, I had to make those images, you know, and I made those images at first thinking, no one will ever want to see these, what will I do with these, you know, but I just needed to make them as an artist. And I did, and um, they weren't initially made to be a book. In fact, you know, I thought about them as a as an artist. So they, you know, came to me in groups of three and two. And so, you know, eventually I did put them together as a book and, and wrote, you know, wrote about it. And the writing was really inspired by Walter White's pieces in the crisis called the work of a mob. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I've been very lucky. People were incredibly supportive. Um, I've had really, uh, you know, thoughtful, reviews of the piece um since it's been published and um you know and i and i just want to say a plug if people purchase that book you can purchase it from verso press which is the press that published it but all the royalties um from it go to the national center for civil and human rights in atlanta georgia um so you know that's the other thing i was like i just want to make this book and put it out there so yeah thank you i i appreciate some uh so many parts, parts of that. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that. And uh, this might be just an absurd, you know, like from a philosophy perspective, this might even just be an absurd question, but you as artist and teacher is what lesson might we take away from something so dark and horrific? You know, that's a great question. And a lot of people have asked me that they're like, you know, this is so terrible. I cannot get this out of my head. And I said, you know, that's, what I want. I want for you to, you know, there's a poem by um, uh, Prima Levy that I draw on when I think about this, this work that was really meaningful to me. And, and one part of that poem, you know, he wrote about being in Auschwitz, basically says, carve this onto your hearts. Never, ever forget that humans did this to one another, you know, that we have the potential in our culture to do this and that it's happened um, we never want this kind of violence to be possible ever again. And if we forget, it becomes possible. You know, and it might be trained, it might look different, but it's the same thing again. So, I mean, that, that to me is, 
you know, what I really wanted people to recognize. I mean, when you look at photos of lynchings, you see gleeful groups of white people, you know, looking at another human and taking pleasure from their brutal, humiliating, horrible death. And, you know, a lot of people always assume, well, I would never do that. And I'm like, actually, if you had been around at that point in time, you really can't say what you would have done if you were a white person. Um, and so I think that's that's really important to, to keep in our forefront what we are capable of. Um, you know, and that's the dark side of what we're capable of. Obviously, we're capable of amazing and good things as well. Right. Yeah. And th- thanks again for j- sharing such a powerful uh, story. And when you were talking about that time frame and, you know, kind of just bleeding into like the late teens into the early 20s. And it's just on some different levels. I've been talking to folks about some strange similarities too. from like, just like you said, there, there was a pandemic and the great war, these global struggles, but then also lots of unrest and uh, just so, so many different elements that, that seem similar. And so I do, do appreciate the need to remember these these stories too to just like remind us of our need for humanity right and that uh our humanity is not a given right yeah. it, and so how do we how do how do we cultivate our better selves yeah. uh and i i don't have an answer but i think you know s- stories and work like you're producing do help remind us of 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 the dark side well in history you know we can learn a lot if we become students of history um i I am such a, a, you know, I'll use a comic term. I am a huge fangirl of historians, big time. And, you know, I, I think the work they do is absolutely incredible. And, you know, now that I've sort of worked in that way, and I would never be able to call myself a historical scholar because I'm not, but, you know, it's incredible the stories that they are able to piece together. And I think if everyone became a student of history, they would recognize, oh, we've been here before. These are wicked problems we've already worked through. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, right. and, you know, that says a lot about our memory as a species. Very short, very short. Thank you, uh, Rachel. Towards the end of our conversations, I uh, love uh, talking to to creatives, to artists about uh, just notions of advice. And as, as an artist or as a scholar, you know, you're wearing many hats, but if, if you don't mind sharing with us good advice you've either received in, in your life or uh, I invoke uh, uh, Austin Kleon quite a bit on the podcast, you know, from Steal Like an Artist, he says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So it could be advice that you wish you would have had early in your career, but if you don't mind just any advice that you might have for listeners. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll just circle back to really, you know, the thing my dad said, which is some people just work really hard at it. And I think honestly, as people, if you find something you love and work really hard at it, you know, good things are going to happen. I mean, it might not be your career, but it might be your calling. Um, And so I think, you know, that's actually a really, uh, for me, that's a real positive and possible generative thing. I mean, I think the other thing too is, you know, the other thing is try to do no harm, you know, do good things for other people and stop and ask yourself, you know, am I going to hurt anyone here? Is this, is this going to be okay? Am I, am I making the world, um, you know, a better place for other people, not just myself. So. 
Oh, that that's great. I really, really appreciate that. And in the spirit of qualitative research, were there any topics we didn't cover today that you thought we might touch upon? Oh, you know, I, I mean, this is a whole nother podcast, but I think, you know, for me, qualitative research is really about stories. And, and I think stories are probably some of the most powerful um, forces within our culture. And I think that those stories, you know, are spoken in different ways. They're through songs, they're through images, they're through interactions. Um, they're all around us all the time. Yeah, th- yeah, I'd love to dig in. Uh, maybe, maybe you'll you'll come back. And, oh, uh, that would be fabulous. This has been a great experience. Uh, yeah, I'd love to jump in on stories. That's one of the things that I t- talk about too. Is just how, as humans, we're wired to convey w- really complex information through stories, and it's how we remember good or bad, and guiding, and uh, and then where we even, like, the themes that might emerge from the stories, and how those can trigger other stories. Oh, yeah, I'd love to, love to nerd out on stories and storytelling with you. I'm there. I'm so there. Absolutely. And again, I will make sure that I have a link in the, the description, but if, could you, uh, could you say again where folks might, uh, uh, Elegy for Mary Turner, where they could get that, uh, so that funds do go to. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're local in Iowa City, I believe Prairie Lights has it. Um, obviously, you can go to Verso Press, V-E-R-S-O. Um, they're, a, they're the publisher. There's a lot of independent presses who are or booksellers who are also selling this. Um, so I think you can get it that way. I think it's also available as an ebook. You can get it on your Kindle. Um, and then uh, the other books I mentioned, obviously, um, we do this till we free us. Miriam Kaba's book um, that's available through Haymarket Press, um, and Julie Armstrong's book is available through. Um, I have it right here in front of me, uh, the University of Georgia Press. So um, you know you can get all of those at your local booksellers. That's great, Rachel. Thank you again. I, I really appreciate it, uh, you having uh, taking the time having you on the show. So it was an honor to get to talk to you and and your projects. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for spreading the good word about the Iowa um, idea. It's so important to bring people together to think about how to solve wicked problems through lots of different lenses. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.